This episode is sponsored by Lens Protocol. Lens lets you own your own social media presence, easily monetize your content, and carry your social graph with you wherever you go. That means you, the creator, can focus on creating without ever having to worry about losing access to your account or having to build a new following again. Lens also lets you engage more closely with your fans, directly monetize your work, and if you're a dev, easily spin up a new app with Lens's full suite of developer tools. Lens Protocol is the social layer of Web3. Join the waitlist at waitlist.lens.xyz for the last social media handle you'll ever need. Hey everybody, welcome back to Rehash, a Web3 podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and today we are dissecting identity, reputation, and truth with Billy Ludke, founder of Intuition, a full-stack solution that allows anyone to claim anything about anything. If that sounds cryptic to you, you'll want to brace yourself because Billy and I get into countless esoteric rabbit holes in this episode about what our true identity is, how we know something to be true, and the ways in which technology is affecting our biological intuition. Billy has been in the crypto space for over 10 years and has been working on various decentralized identity projects throughout his time as one of the earliest employees at Consensus and later on a founder of Uport, which was one of the earliest projects in Web3 focused on decentralized identity. I think you'll have a much more enjoyable time listening to Billy talk about some of his core ideas than hearing me attempt to summarize them. So I'm going to cut straight into our conversation. One last thing I want to say is that many of the ideas that we discuss in this episode are open to interpretation, and you probably have your own perspectives on these topics that differ from ours. And I would love it if you joined our Discord or hit us up on Twitter at RehashWeb3 and shared your thoughts with us. I thoroughly enjoyed discussing these topics with Billy, and I would love to continue the conversation with you as well. Also, please leave us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts if you enjoyed this episode, and share it with your friends and family who you think might enjoy it as well. Billy was nominated by Floppy Abe and voted onto the podcast by Niche, LDF, Reka, Karsten, Meg, Floppy Abe, Anonymous, and me, Diana Chen. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Billy. Billy, hi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me and thank you to the community for also having me. Of course. Thanks to Floppy Abe, shout out, thanks. sick handle yes. and sick the memes handle. from the guy, the best handle. And thanks to everybody for pulling through. We're having some technical issues today, so hopefully this comes out clean. But either way, we're going to have a good time. So Billy, I'm so excited to talk to you about all things intuition and everything that's involved in that. I had a few people reach out after I tweeted that we're going to be bringing you onto the podcast saying basically like, I have no idea what intuition is about. I can't figure it out, but it sounds super cool. And so I can't wait to hear the episode. So I think the general gist of it is like, it has something to do with identity and reputation and building truth graphs or something to that effect. Am I at least on the right track? You're definitely on the right track. And the reason for there not being much publicly available right now is very much by intention and design. And we will be coming out of stealth progressively and releasing more to the public over time. But yeah, happy to reveal as much as I can during this. Before we dive into intuition, let's set the stage, talk about the component pieces so that once we do get to intuition, it makes a little bit more sense to people listening. So I wanna start with the identity and reputation piece. I guess a good starting point would be, how do you define 
digital identity. And I've read so many different articles on this and obviously I've experienced it myself. And I think everybody has a slightly different take on what comprises your digital identity. I think the article that's coming to mind, and I think one that maybe you've referenced in one of the intuition blog posts is this article written by Niche from 1KX, who was actually on the podcast previously as well. She defined digital identity as being comprised of two things. Number one, an identifier. So your name, like your username, and then number two, data. And this could be data on who you follow, who follows you, the things that you've tweeted, your LinkedIn profile, your academic background, your achievements, your travel history, any of those things. Do you agree with this framing or do you have anything to add or clarify or edit with this framing? Yeah, I I definitely agree. And I think those things are definitely component pieces of it. But the way that I view identity generally, even outside of digital identity, is kind of like the true holistic thing that is being referenced. And so oftentimes when people hear the word identity, they think of the identities of people. And they typically think of use cases like KYC, AML, civil resistance, under collateralized lending, things of that nature. But everything has an identity and not everything has a digital identifier. And so I think When we think about the identity of things, if we box it into meaning a very specific thing, we're kind of losing the forest for the trees a little bit. And so to me, what identity means is if you were to truly understand something or if you had all of the data pertaining to the thing, like every single action that's ever taken, every interaction that's ever had, every single piece of data about a thing, that is the thing's true identity. And then we build these models on top that are these digital representations of that identity. And we're building those models from extremely flawed and fragmented and disparate data sources. And so the amount of identity that makes it into the digital realm right now is pretty limited. And so digital identity, I would view as kind of like a subset of true identity. But the goal, I think, is to get that digital identity to be more holistically representative of the true identity in the real world. And some things obviously are like natively digital. And so those things don't have real world identities. How do you define true identity? Or real world identity. Why is it that digital identity is only a subset of your true identity? It almost seems like you're saying your true identity is your physical composition or something that you just cannot glean in the digital world. And there's probably an actual definition for identity somewhere, or there definitely is somewhere. We could look it up. We we could look it up, (laughs) but I like the esoteric take a little bit more. And so when I talk about identity, what I mean is exactly that. It's like, I don't even know what my true identity is, but the way that I view identity is it's me, but the truest version of me and what me is, is this thing that has gone through all of these experiences and had all of these interactions. And if you compile every single piece of data that rolls up to this thing that you see, that is my true identity. And then digital identity is like our best attempt at kind of reflecting that in the digital realm. And it's pretty rudimentary right now. And you've got, you know, these application specific digital identities that represent you in different application specific cons. And so even in the digital realm, you've got like hundreds of disparate digital identities that are all, they're all trying to represent the same thing. And maybe they're intentionally representing fragments of this thing. And maybe you're kind of compartmentalizing your personas into different contextual reputations on purpose because you don't want to reveal your true identity holistically. But that's kind of how I 
view the word identity generally. <laughs> yeah, just to play devil's advocate a little further, it sounds like you're saying that your true identity is the essence of who you are as a whole, but how many people in the real world, like taking digital aside, know the true identity of Billy? It's probably not that many, right? Like maybe your family and your best friends. So is there really that much of a difference between the digital and the non-digital world where it's easy to say in the digital world that you show different aspects of your true identity on different apps. So for example, on Twitter, maybe I only talk about crypto, but then on Instagram, maybe I only talk about travel and outdoors things. And only if you follow me on all the platforms will you really see more of a holistic picture of who I am. But even if you follow me on all the platforms, you're only seeing what I choose to showcase, which is only a small percentage of my true identity. And then in the real world too, it's like with certain friend groups, maybe a certain aspect of your personality comes out more than with another friend group. So yeah, I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out if there is a key differentiator between your digital identity and your quote unquote physical identity or your, I don't know what the right terminology for that is. I don't even think our family and our best friends know our true identity. I think maybe we don't even know our true identity. I don't know if there's any single thing that actually knows our true identity, except maybe like the universe, which we can go forever down that esoteric rabbit hole. And so I think that we can use technology to uncover what the true identity of us and other things are. It's not just about capturing what is present in the physical world in the digital realm. It's about also using the digital realm to help us better understand ourselves and better understand our own identities. I think also touching on reputation will help us box things into some sort of grouping so that we can talk about them a little bit better. I view identity probably wrongly, but this is my view of it. I view identity as the true nature of the thing. And then I view reputation as the way that other people view the thing. And so it's like the way that I view you is your reputation. And I, I think that reputation is very relative and it's very contextual. And so your reputation to me is totally different than the reputation of you in the eyes of your family or your best friends. And it's totally different in maybe the context of Web3 than in, I don't know what else you're interested in, but like maybe you're not so interested in sports. And so even though you might be a voice of reason in, in Web3, maybe people shouldn't take your opinion with respect Definitely to sports. Not. And so I don't know, this is just my framing for the two words. And we probably need many more words to describe all of these concepts. And I would love to create some new words using intuition. And that's another rabbit hole. But like, I view identity as the true nature of the thing. And then I view reputation as the framing of the thing as viewed from other people's perspectives or other things perspectives even. I think I would agree with that framing. So zooming out a little bit and not just dissecting the, the semantics of identity, reputation, all those things. I know you've been working in this identity and reputation space for the last decade or more. You were one of the early people at Consensus and then subsequently you were at Uport, which was one of the earliest, if not the earliest projects that really looked at decentralized identifiers and really focused on identity in the Web3 space. I'm curious, big picture, what are some of the key learnings or takeaways that you've gleaned over the last decade plus of working on identity and reputation in the Web3 space? I think there's two very big learnings that I learned over the years. The first one is why I think talking about identity in this very esoteric way is actually really important. And I think it's the first learning is that 
many people have boxed identity into meaning a specific thing. And to some people, it means civil resistance. And they think that like WorldCoin is the answer to identity. And it's like, okay, that's a piece of the puzzle. And so I think that we just need to think about the picture way more broadly because true identity and reputation is kind of relevant for every single application. It's relevant for every single use case. And when people box it into meaning something like a subset of what it truly means, then you can only apply that technology to a very limited subset of applications and use cases. So first thing I discovered is people just like thinking very narrowly about the concept of identity. And then the second thing that I learned is it's very hard to focus on high criticality stuff first and highly political and highly sensitive stuff first, which is what we were doing and what many people continue to do. And so back in 2017, for instance, at Uport, we partnered with the city of Zug in Switzerland, and we were issuing their passports as verifiable credentials on Uport. So we had the technology to do this stuff back then. But the problem was you approach any other governmental agency and you say, hey, can you accept this verifiable credential on Uport to authenticate this person into their platform? Like, what is what What are all of those words that you just said? What is a verifiable credential? What is Uport? What is Ethereum? We have no idea what you're saying. Like, we need the physical document. And so focusing on these very highly sensitive, very highly political use cases, it requires a lot of just banging your head against the wall. And it requires a lot of standards committees and getting trapped in standards hell and trying to fight these political battles when we could just be starting with the low sensitivity, low criticality stuff first and getting people to want to claim things about things in a more fun or peer-to-peer manner, as opposed to going straight for passport, driver's license, things that require a whole lot of political buy-in. And you need to test the stack first and you need to prove to these people that the stack works in a lower criticality setting before you approach them and ask them to transition these very important things over to your stack. And so I think that's what we're seeing across the board. We're kind of like with crypto addressing these lower sensitivity things before we're going to eventually address the highly political stuff. So I think those are two of my biggest takeaways. What are some low sensitivity things you would attest to right now? If I ask you, oh man, so, so much. And just to break down the word attestation, it's just a statement about a thing. And everything's a statement about a thing. When you hit a like on Twitter, that's an attestation that you like the tweet. When you hit five stars on Yelp, every action you take in the digital realm can be an attestation. It's really just signing a message with your private key that is about some other thing. And so that's how I view the word attestation. What I would love to attest to right now is where intuition came from. And it's, I would love to attest to things about things in Web3, because right now, I don't really have a good public tool for keeping track of all of my Web3 stuff. I have like a million browser tabs open. I've got a thousand bookmarks I never go back to. I use Rome Research to take notes and I tag things with things sometimes and it's okay, but it doesn't work super well. And I just need a tool to keep track of my own life a little bit better. And so I would love to attest to things. And as I go about the digital realm, interacting with things, having those be attestations that aren't owned by the platform or the application, they should be captured in some sort of decentralized manner. And so I can leverage those activities across the web to create lists of things. And so what I would love to attest to is anytime I interact with a thing, have that be an attestation, or maybe there's an explicit action when I interact with a thing where it's like, hey, do you want to give this a thumbs up? And by doing that, it gets added to your list. If it's an AMM, it's like, this gets added to your list of Ethereum AMMs or whatnot. I, I would love to attest to just 
things that help me keep track of my life better, which I hope that makes sense at all. But <laughs> that's my number one use case right now. <laughs> I think that's a cool use case. I actually hadn't thought of that. I was more thinking like I want to test to that. I like LaCroix because I'm drinking that right now. I was thinking more in terms of statements like that. And I was thinking that in the Web3 space right now, where I think our opinions about things change over time. I'm sure you've maybe tweeted something from 10 years ago about crypto that you no longer agree with, maybe. Or maybe you tweeted a prediction that ended up being not true. Or maybe you tweeted a prediction that ended up being exactly true. And you want to gloat about that and show people that what you tweeted in 2015 is now true in 2023. And so people should listen to what you have to say. I guess that kind of leads me to thinking about objective or subjective truths. And so we've you've thrown out this word true a lot, like true identity, true whatever. And of course, truth is kind of a complicated topic in our world today with all the fake news that's run rampant and all the citizen journalism that is everywhere on every social app, it can be sometimes hard to decipher what truth is. When you see a headline, you're not sure whether to believe that or not, you have to check the source. Sometimes you see a meme or somebody tweets something sarcastically, and maybe you don't know them and you don't know the context behind that and you take that as true. This comes up every day, I think, in our lives for anybody who's online. So how can we use things like verifiable credentials, decentralized identifiers, or just concepts around identity and reputation to build a collection of verifiable truths that I can rely on and that I'm not like, then I have to go fact check and maybe doubt and maybe be afraid to tell my friends because I don't know if it's true or not. Yeah, that is the big question. And I can talk about this for a very long time. But here's my thoughts on these topics. So I think that maybe there's truth in the world, but I don't I, I feel like everything is asymptotically probabilistic. And you can arrive at a very high level of certainty that a thing is maybe true through relying on a lot of trusted data. So let's say, for instance, you keep jumping and you keep coming back to Earth and you get self-observed data that maybe gravity is true. After a while, you're like, okay, gravity is probably true. But like everything in the world, you arrive at the fact of whether or not it's true by just analyzing data points. Even it's like, okay, you go to Wikipedia. Is this true? Well, it's on Wikipedia and there's probably a good approval process for data making its way onto Wikipedia. So I'm going to trust the editors of Wikipedia that this thing is true. And so I think we just need to zoom out a little bit and understand that it's very hard in most cases to have truth. And I think it's all social consensus at the end of the day. And there's a whole lot of biases baked into even the most objective things in the world. And it's hard to zoom out all the way and, and recognize those biases. And I think that what this technology enables is it allows everyone to have a voice. And the vision that I think we have with intuition is let's just get everyone claiming things about things. Let's see what everyone's saying. And then you decide who to trust. So instead of the current mode of existence that we're locked into right now, wherein it's efficient. And so there's a little bit of UX friction that gets introduced here, but it's like, I go to Wikipedia and that is my source of truth. But that is like one truth. And maybe I would love to see what people have said in the past or what the reputation of the people editing that information on Wikipedia are. And I can arrive at my own truth based on who I trust and my connections to people who have connections to those editors. And so the future that I'd love to see is instead of there being a truth, there being 
many relative subjective truths of the world. And you can choose your own interpretation of things based on the people you decide to trust. And so you don't get locked into these echo chambers. You don't get locked into a singular mode of trust. And when you have a singular mode of trust, it kind of opens you up to this vulnerability of whoever is that voice determines what the truth is. And so instead of any single party determining what the truth is, I think that everyone should be able to state what they think the truth is. And then you can interpret that data in any way that you want. And the way that you will probably interpret it is by leveraging something like a trust graph to weight the data based on the things that you trust, claiming things about different things. Man, I keep going down these rabbit holes, but I'll pause there. Does that make any sense? Does that make any sense? It does. I do have a question, which is, I, maybe we're jumping ahead a little bit, but like the way that you guys have been building intuition, how do you think about what that interface looks like. If I read an article that says gravity is real and I'm not sure if it is or not. And I think maybe it is because I've done this jumping exercise and I keep landing back on the ground, but I'm not sure because I'm not a scientist. I've never collected any other data points or anything. I've never watched basketball before in my life. <laughs> so I, I see this and then I see that Billy is the person that wrote gravity is real. I'm wondering what happens next. Do I click on your name and I see that you're a physicist with a degree from Stanford that has done X, Y, and Z research? How deep into this rabbit hole do we end up going? And I'm just wondering how this user interface looks for an average user that doesn't want to become a deep researcher in something. Totally. And what I think the user experience looks like is exactly what it looks like now, except you have the option to toggle to different models. And so in the context of, let's say, I'm going to equip this model that analyzes the data, maybe the way that it's presently analyzed. And maybe I don't create that model myself. Maybe I rely on someone else to create that model for me. And then I can just equip it for the context of science. And if same thing for any different context, you can equip different models to analyze different sets of data in different contexts so that at least you have the freedom of choice. And maybe there's only one model to choose from. That's the present model that we're locked into right now where there's one default model you can't choose. And maybe if, if no one takes the effort to create a second model, then the user experience looks exactly the same as it does now. But at least there's the opportunity for other people to analyze the data in different ways and for you to recognize that you're seeing the data through someone's filtered lens. At the end of the day, that's what you're doing anytime you interact with anything in the digital realm is you're seeing the world through some lens. The lens is different depending on the platform that you're presently interacting with. But I think we need to abstract away the kind of the concept of the application and the lens that you're equipping to view the data on the application. So I don't think we need to introduce all of this friction where a person needs to click into a profile to see who is saying what. It's more like it'll happen programmatically, it'll happen automatically, and you'll be presented with the stuff you want to see. But at least you get to choose the lens that you're viewing the world through. What about for a more controversial topic? Like the gravity example is bad, but actually in a group chat that I'm part of, there was a debate in there recently about a new ERC-721H standard or something. And people were debating whether that's in fact a new standard or if that is just a new implementation of an existing standard. And as a non-dev, I don't know. I have no clue about any of it. And so if I were to see a statement that says there's a new ERC-721H standard, what information would then be presented to me if I toggled that 
and chose to have more information about it, would it present to me both sides of the argument that maybe it's a new standard or maybe it's just a new implementation of an existing standard? I'm trying to think in terms of more complex or more controversial topics, yeah. how it would help no, me is, come to that conclusion. This is trust. a cool topic. And obviously no one has figured this out yet because the infrastructure doesn't even exist for us to be able to do this. So first we got to build the stuff and then comes the UX. But this is so cool. So maybe, and I'm just thinking of this right now, but maybe it's like based on the level of controversy, you are actually showing whether or not the thing is controversial. And when it is controversial, it's like, hey, here's the people saying this thing and here's the people saying this other thing. So at least you know that there's some other side to the story. Whereas right now, we're oftentimes locked into this echo chamber where we only see one side and we don't even know that another side exists. And so people get trapped in these bubbles. And so I think it'd be really cool when you're encountering something controversial to see even if it's just a little flag, so it's not in your face and there's not a bunch of friction involved, it's just like, hey, this is a controversial thing. Would you like to pop it open and see more details about why it's controversial and who is on the other side of the argument? And then if you look at that and you see there's some people on the other side of the argument that I trust, then maybe you, you dig a little bit deeper and you keep digging deeper until you uncover what the truth means to you. That makes sense. Another question, something that Floppy Abe wanted to know is, what are the limits of human intuition? in the digital age? Oh, yeah. So the limits of human intuition, the whole reason, and, and this is a tribes rant that I oftentimes go on. The reason this whole thing is called intuition is because our biological wetware is limited. So when we live in these tribes of 150 people or less. Which is Dunbar's number, right? Dunbar's, exactly. Okay. Yep. And so we had pretty good intuition because we had all of the data pertaining to the things that we were interacting with because we were able to capture that data through personal experience and then we were able to store it in our heads. There's probably a couple people that we spent every day with and grew up with. We had all of the data pertaining to them. So we had a more holistic view of what the identity of that thing is. And maybe there's a couple tools that we use like a rock or a stick and we use them to smash or build stuff. So not that many tools. So we had pretty good intuition when we interacted with them. And now we just interact with like thousands of things probably on a daily basis. And so what we have to do is we have to outsource our cognition to technology. And so that's where our biological intuition draws a line and we have to supplement with technology. And so what we do is we supplement with Twitter or Instagram to get a feel for who a person is before we do business with them or Yelp reviews for a restaurant before we sit down for dinner or Amazon reviews for a product before we buy it. And we have to keep doing that. We don't really have any other option because the pace of interconnectivity of our society is evolving faster than our biological wetware is evolving. And so we, we don't really have any other choice. And there's a bunch of flaws in the ways that we do it now, which is why we're building intuition. We view intuition as the thing that can extend our biological intuition and equip it with some technological stuff to equip it better for this larger scale age. Do you think our biological intuition has gotten better or worse with technology? I think it's gotten worse. And maybe I hope I don't regret that statement. But it seems like we're so dumbed down to things and not generally aware. And maybe we're more in tune with things happening in the digital realm. But in the physical realm, I think our intuition is fading to kind of it depends on the person and their level of interactivity with the digital realm. Maybe they're a person who like solely exists in the physical realm. But yeah, I think it's getting worse. Yeah. I mean, I notice even when I'm out hiking or something or when I'm completely disconnected because I'm in an area without cell reception, I'm so much more observant of my surroundings. Normally, like walking down the street, going from point A to point B, I'm not observing what's around me. Maybe this is just me. 
Maybe this is in conclusion, (laughs) I'm an unobservant person. Maybe that's all it is. But I think technology makes us not observant of our surroundings. And then also the access to information that we have online makes it so that we don't really need to retain much information. Because if we're hanging out and we're like, oh, gee, I read this article that says actually gravity is not real. Scientists have disproven it. We're like, oh, shoot, let's just look it up. Is gravity real? Is this a new standard? Are aliens real? We can Google anything we want and not saying you're going to get an answer that's based on any kind of truth, but you'll get something. We had a camping weekend and didn't have any cell service and we were trying to play card games and we couldn't even play card games because none of us could remember the rules to card games or we all had our own version of the rules and it was just mass chaos where we all wanted to play our own version of the same card game and we couldn't verify what the actual rules were. So yeah, I kind of think it's ruined our biological intuition a little bit. It's so scary, but I think it's also necessary if we want to advance at the pace that we are trying to advance at. And I think about this a lot, and I kind of wanted to go and hike the PCT and just learn how to survive because I feel this deep sense of insecurity, but I'm so reliant on society for things. Like, I don't know how to hunt. I don't know how to build a shelter. I am useless without this mechanism or the system that is society. And it'd be awesome to have the confidence that Even if all of this fell apart, I would still be able to survive and live my life. And I think that if if you want to do that, then you have to direct time and energy and attention to those things and you can't specialize. And I think the world is just becoming increasingly specialized and you can't possibly be the best at everything. Like you only have a limited amount of time and energy and attention. And so I think what we're doing is just redirecting our abilities to other stuff. Like you're really good at probably Googling now. And I think that wasn't a skill that we had before and quickly reading through information to figure out what it's trying to say. And so I think we're just learning new skills that are rooted in the foundation of society being there and technology being there for us to leverage as a tool to do things better. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's this symbiotic relationship between humanity and technology. And we're at this point where (laughs) I feel like it's this breaking point where if we just keep going down this path, we're going to be so reliant that without technology, we are just absolutely screwed. And then there's going to be nothing we can do. And I think there's still some people left in the world who aren't entirely reliant on technology. And so maybe society fragments into two different directions and one goes the non-technological route and the other goes to technology. I don't know what's going to happen, but I think we should think about it. That's all I think is that I think we should think about it intentionally a little bit more. <laughs> Where do you live? We can cut this out, but I'm just <laughs> I live in Oh, okay. I, I was going to guess like Williamsburg or something. I was kind of laughing when you were saying that because I moved out West to a smaller place in the PNW a couple years ago. And people out here don't use technology at all. Like my background is as an attorney in Chicago. And I used to always complain about how law firms and lawyers are so behind the times when it comes to technology. And there are still older attorneys that don't even know how to use email and literally will use a dictaphone to like dictate their emails to their secretary who will then type it up and then send it out. It's insane. But people out here are like that. Not all people, obviously, I'm very much stereotyping, but there are people. So I don't know if that actually is a true statement that most of the world is becoming so reliant on technology. I think that most of the world is actually still in, I don't know, I would say the 2010s or maybe 2000s when it comes to technology. And I just think that 
a lot of the people working in this Web3 bubble are living in a very small bubble that we think is the world. It's not. I think you're entirely right. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. And that gives me more hope for humanity. But I guess the question is, when you see those people, are their kids also not using technology or are the kids glued to the iPad and unable to take themselves away? I don't know about kids. I don't really interact with many kids, but I'm talking about people my age, like our age. I'm not talking about our parents or grandparents. So even if we're talking about people in their late 20s and 30s, even 40s, those are people that you would think would be pretty well-versed in technology. And those are the people that I'm saying actually aren't really at all. Gotcha. That's awesome. That makes me so happy to hear. What scares me to death is just how easy it is to strap kids to an iPad and get them off your back. And so I think all of these kids are going to grow up addicted to technology even more than we did. I'm not super worried about our generation. And I think we've got a decent amount of time to figure things out. But the new generation, I don't know. And it depends on the region that we're talking about. There's definitely regions of the world that don't have that privilege. But I just see so many kids just unable to even pay attention because they are able to go to their iPad and get hits of dopamine from that. And so I think we've entirely addicted, I don't know, at least some percent of the new generation to technology, even more so than we're addicted. But yeah, I think that's probably true in a lot of major cities where at least like Chicago, I can speak for that having come from there, there's nothing to do for like nine months of the year when it's just really cold. And all you can do as an adult even is go out to the bar and drink or eat, which is fun sometimes, maybe not for nine months out of the year, every year for the rest of your life. But it's like, you can't even send them outside and be like, just go outside and play or go outside and do whatever. Whereas where I live now, I think there's much more of a culture of like every weekend, the family goes skiing or the family goes hiking. Like these are the family activities, not so much sitting at home with nothing to do because kids really only crave iPad time when they're bored. If you give them a better alternative that doesn't involve technology, I think they take it. I love the West Coast. <laughs> yeah. So going back to intuition real quick. Uh, I want to talk about the other side. So we've been talking about the consumer side. How do we consume information, know what's true, determine that, have the freedom of choice sort of thing. On the other side, you then need a sort of database of people to contribute knowledge to intuition, right? So how do you incentivize people to share their knowledge? And then how do you also manage due diligence with that crowdsource knowledge? Yeah. So I'll tackle the due diligence piece first, just because that's easier to get out of the way. Intuition is not focused on doing due diligence. Intuition is not opinionated. Maybe we build some very crude rudimentary interpretations of the data to present to people. But at the end of the day, we never want to say what is true or false or right or wrong or lock you into any sort of interpretation of the data. But that's a very important piece of the puzzle. We just think that there's a lot of people who are doing that already. And you should just have the freedom of choice with respect to who you want to choose at the curation level. And we're just a little bit lower level than that. So we're not going to do that, but very important. Some people need to do it. How do you get people claiming things about things? That's a really good question. So the way that I think about it is we have four pillars of incentives to work with. And when people hear the word incentive, I think they oftentimes think of economic incentives. And that's definitely a piece of the puzzle. I think it's a very powerful motivator for some subset of the population. But you also have reputational incentives, you have functional incentives, and then you have educational incentives. And so 
functional and educational are a little bit easier to get out of the way first because there's not too much new stuff there. Functional is just make people want to make claims about things. The whole point of intuition is we all have all of this data in our heads that's really not making its way into the digital realm. And so if you come to me and you ask me about someone in Web3, maybe you're looking to hire someone and I've interacted with them, I can tell you about them. Or you're coming to where I live and you ask me about a restaurant in the area, I can tell you about the restaurant, but I have never written an Amazon review. I've never written a Yelp review. I've never liked a YouTube video. I click five stars on Uber every time because I just don't care. And so it's not that the data doesn't exist. It's that the data exists in our heads and we're just not publishing it in the digital realm. And so you got to make people want to do it. I think the first and maybe the most important way that you do it is you give them some utility for doing it. Going back to like you asked, what do you want to attest about things? I I want utility out of it. I want to be able to keep track of my life a little bit better. I am not going to go through this friction of I finished dinner at a restaurant and then I pay with my credit card and I have to open my phone and I have to context switch to Google reviews or Yelp and then write a long form review to leave a rating for the thing. It's like, no, I just want to at the payment flow, hit a little thumbs up button and then log that to my intuition to be like, oh, I was here. I have verifiable evidence that I was here because I made a payment to the restaurant. And now I can remember that I like that restaurant or someone else can look at my intuition and be like, oh, look at that. Billy went here and he gave it a five-star rating. So maybe I want to go here later. I don't know. So just like making it useful for people to make claims about things for themselves, but in making it useful for them, also exposing that data to others so that the data that's being captured is also useful to others. And also very quickly, I'd like to hit on this. This is kind of where intuition came from was I was doing a bunch of angel investing and advisory work before. And my unique value prop to people was like, hey, let me just connect the dots for you. I've been in crypto for 10 years. Let me just tell you who's come before, who exists now, what tools you might want to use, things like that. And what happened was I just found myself on a bunch of calls all the time. Because the only way that you could get that information that was in my head was by talking to me. And so I was like, oh, well, let me just export my mind map of Web3 into software. So you can just go and discover it for yourselves instead of needing to talk to me. And there was real utility in that. But this knowledge graph that was being captured was being only curated by me and a couple other people that I onboarded. But then I was like, what if everyone could contribute to the knowledge graph? And then what if people were incentivized to add good data to the knowledge graph? That would be pretty interesting. And so I wanted to capture stuff in this knowledge graph because I needed a tool to organize my own life in Web3. It's like, oh, I'm bridging over to Avalanche. What's the AMM over there? It's not Uniswap and SushiSwap anymore. It's like Trader Joe and Pangolin Swap. It's like, I don't want to have to remember that. And like Rome Research, it's not the best interface for clicking around and finding that. It's just, I don't have a good tool to keep track of it. And so I just ended up using this application to keep track of stuff for me. But in keeping track of it for me, it kept track of it for everyone else. So this functional pillar is just make it useful for people to make claims for themselves but then also make that data available and useful to others. So that's pillar number one. I'll pause any questions on that one. Love it. Love it. No, love Sick. it. Keep going. Love it so far. Cool. All right. Second way you get people to make claims about things is educational. And so there's a subset of the population that is this user persona that's an educator, like the Austin Griffiths of the world or the professors or whatever. So those people will probably want to just attest to things to educate people generally. And it's also the curators. I think those people probably fall into the educational category, but I think we can get more people to be this educator persona if there's direct ties between the reputation and the education. And so what I mean by this is like, I have never written an Amazon review because when I write a review, 
it just gets lost in the sea of anonymous accounts. I don't have a friends list on Amazon. And so my friends will never see the review that I leave. It's just going to get lost in the sea of stuff. But imagine if your friends could see the reviews that you left. Maybe you would want to be an educator then. Maybe you would want to leave the review because instead of needing to message them in the group chat, be like, oh, I just bought this amazing thing. You have to go and buy it. You go to Amazon, you see all of the stuff that your friends are saying about things instead of 10,000 reviews from anonymous accounts, 90% of which are bots. And you have to kind of view these pillars as one system. If you view them all individually, they each kind of make sense. But when you view them holistically, it makes a whole lot of sense. And so the educational piece, it's like, I might want to be an educator because I'm going to start building reputation by being an educator within my following or community or trust graph or whatever this thing is. So that's the educational piece, which is also tied into all the other pieces. When I keep track of my stuff in Web3, I can also choose to expose that to other people and then I'm educating them. And it's like a one-click thing for me to do it. So why wouldn't I do it? And maybe I also make some money for doing that. So amazing. I'm going to start testing the things more now. The reputational piece, Go also going back to the Amazon example, it's like, I don't leave reviews in Amazon or Yelp because I don't care about my Amazon reputation. I don't care about my Yelp reputation. I can still go to any restaurant I want. I can still buy whatever product I want, regardless of my reputation. I'm not a seller of products. So my reputation doesn't mean anything to me in the context of these platforms and especially not outside of the context of the platforms because I can't take my Amazon reputation and go get an Uber or rent an Airbnb. The data and the reputation, one, is stuck within these platforms. And then two, isn't even usable within those platforms, let alone outside of those platforms. And so once you unlock this concept of portable identity and reputation and social graphs, then you might start caring about your reputation that you generate within each of these individual contexts a little bit more. And so you might start wanting to attest to things or have more activity tracked for you because you're building reputation that actually means something. If I could use my Twitter following or my Reddit karma and the fact that I'm a good reviewer on Amazon to go get an under collateralized loan in DeFi, maybe I'd care a little bit more about these contextual reputations that you generate. So that's kind of like in my mind, the reputational piece. And then also really quickly, to t what I think is super important to touch on is portable social graphs and reputation also let you do some pretty cool stuff outside of just you using your own reputation elsewhere. It also lets you import your social graph anywhere. So when I go to Amazon, instead of seeing just my friends seeing my reviews, I can overlay the reviews with my social graph and see what my friends are saying about stuff. Because even though we just met like an hour ago, if you have an opinion about a restaurant that I should go to or a product I should buy, I will trust your opinion way more than all these anonymous reviews on the internet. Even if the restaurant says one star on Yelp and you're like, no, but like, trust me, you got to go to this. I will 100% go to it because it's like, <laughs> there's just that connect. If we can just replicate that in the digital realm, I think it would go so far to combating this problem of all of these bots and all of these scammers because who is leaving these reviews? If you look at the data, 97% of people are not contributing data to these platforms. And all of us are leveraging this data when we make decisions. Even me as someone ranting about this on a podcast, I still go to Amazon. I'm still like, oh, five-star review from 10,000 people. Of course, I'm going to buy this. Or like five-star restaurant versus three-star. Of course, I'm going to the five-star restaurant. Even though I know most of it's fake. And who's writing? None of my friend, everyone I talk to, none of those people have ever written any of those things. But I still trust it because it's all we got right now. So... Anyway, I could rant about that for another, but I'll pause there. That's reputational pillar.
you can work for yourself without doing it by yourself. As a freelancer or independent worker, you're constantly engaging your network and updating your professional profile, but the tools we use to do this haven't evolved in the last 20 years. Quest makes it easier than ever to gather support for a new idea, broadcast updates to your network, and showcase your best work on your profile. It's one link for who you are and what you do. Sign up at rehash.quest.com to follow along with our Quest so you never miss an episode or create your own Quest today. It's so funny when I'm looking up reviews for a lot of the coffee shops here, there have been times when every single review is about this coffee shop is so great. The girls working there are so nice. And I'm like 10 reviews down. Not a single one actually talked about the coffee at the coffee shop. It's just about all these other things that I don't care about that maybe everybody else here cares about. But I just want good coffee. I want fast and efficient service which none of the reviews mention any of these things or like I love when I'm on all trails looking up a new trail and it's like a one star review on the trail and the review just says couldn't even find the trail one star (laughs) you're like okay great so that's That's why this trail has three stars (laughs) yeah and that's the problem is we're only capturing data at the extremes at the negative end of the extreme you've got people who have had such a bad experience that they have gone out of their way to leave an extremely negative review And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got businesses who are incentivized to create fake claims about their business in the form of positive reviews because every single one of us is leveraging that data. It is so valuable. You make so much money just by boosting your reputation through fake reviews. And so why wouldn't they do that? I don't know the percent, probably some very large percent of positive reviews are just the companies claiming stuff about themselves or perverse incentives where it's like, hey, if you give us a five-star review, on Yelp, we're going to give you a 20% discount next time. And it's like, oh, maybe I'll go out of my way this time. Like, <laughs> If there's something in it for me to do it, then I'm going to do it. That's the only time I've even thought about leaving a positive review. Uh, maybe I'm just a horrible person, but I'm like, oh, that's $20 next time? Like, okay, maybe I'll do this. <laughs> so it just broke it. <laughs> Last question I wanted to ask about intuition. So first of all, just to clarify, intuition is a protocol layer, right? It is, but we view it as like, there's the protocol, there's the middleware, and then there's like the applications and we're building stuff at each of those layers. So, so yes, and other stuff. Okay, cool. So you're building the individual apps as well, but essentially what people can do, what you're building is this knowledge graph or trust graph and any dev can come in and build an app. So for example, if somebody has an idea to build a foodie app, that's like Yelp, but instead of Yelp, when I go on this app, I only see reviews from my friends that have left reviews, or I can filter by my friends' reviews at the top first before I see other random people's reviews or something like that. Or somebody could come in and build any other kind of reputation and identity app, like social apps as well, or anything like that, job networking apps, anything that utilizes this knowledge graph that you guys are building. Yeah, correct. Do you have any apps you want to see built out right away or that you think would be the coolest apps to have? Yeah. So the coolest apps are, I think, the ones that we're trying to build ourselves. But I think what I'd love for more people to focus on, and we're trying to do some things with other people in this vein, is I'll lump it into this very large basket of Web3 security. I think we have to solve this problem as an interest industry as soon as possible. And so if you're out there and you've made it this far, uh, listening to me ramble for this long, please 
we need more people focusing on this. The user experience of Web3 cannot remain what it is now for the next bull run. If we get 100 million people trying to find some parallel financial system, the user experience can't be, they come in, they don't know what's trustworthy, they don't know what's a scam, they immediately lose all their money. That is so bad because not only do they not have a really good experience, they have such a bad experience that it's so hard to get them back. It's easier to get people's attention a first time than it is to give them a horrible first impression and then win them back over a second time. And so I think maybe I'm most excited about just like general ability to interact with Web3 in a trustworthy way. And that's smart contract security slash reputation. It's even just like project reputation where some people come in and maybe, for instance, your crypto friend is someone who loves Cardano or something like that. And then your only view of crypto is Cardano. And you, you just got trapped into the wrong echo chamber. You're new to Web3. You don't even know who to trust. And so you just end up falling into the wrong groups and you end up losing all your money to these scams. And so what I think would be really cool, and I think we need to solve immediately is just allowing people again to equip different lenses. And so maybe I don't know much about Web3 and my trust graph isn't super strong. I don't have a strong friends graph, but I know that this one guy, Vitalik, people seem to really like, and he's really trusted. So I'm going to equip Vitalik's lens of the world. I'm going to see the world through his trust graph and view. And based on Vitalik's social graph, it looks like these are the reputable projects. So it's just like reputation of things and trustworthiness of things and also security of things right now, like the user experiences, you got all these DGen groups aping into all these things and whether or not something's a rug or a scam is someone says in the group chat, Hey, it's a rug. And what you have to do as a user is you have to scroll up in the group chat, be like, what have people been saying about this thing? But what I'd love to see is just like in MetaMask, what my friend or the people I trust are saying about this thing. It's like my friend interacted with this thing and then he said, it's a rug. So I'm not going to confirm the transaction. I'm actually going to reject it and not lose all my money. I just think that there is so much to do on this front so that the user experience is not just not bad. It's pretty good. And people are like, wow, this is actually a viable alternative to what's going on elsewhere. Because right now we are not there. People don't know they have no idea what they're doing. They don't even know Uniswap exists. They have to somehow find you. Oh my God, I can rant about this so much, but it's just like reputation also plays into just the general user experience. And how do you know to use MetaMask instead of some other bad wallet that doesn't take security as seriously? Or how do you know which bridge to use? How do you know who to trust who is publishing the right RPC endpoint for a chain? I don't know. The user experience right now, just to hark on this really quickly, like typically what people do is they go to Coinbase and they maybe buy some ETH. And then they're like, now what? I want to like do stuff. What do I do now? All right, well, you got to install this thing called MetaMask. Okay, you go find MetaMask. You probably install the wrong MetaMask in the process. But let's say you find the right MetaMask to install. You install MetaMask. You're presented with, all right, store your seed phrase somewhere secure. You're like, all right, I already don't know what these words mean. What is seed phrase somewhere secure? All right, plain text on my desktop. Here we go. So you do that. And then you're like, all right, how do I get the, the money from the Coinbase to the MetaMask? And you're like, why aren't they connected? I thought it's supposed to be like, I have an Ethereum account. It's like, no, you got to paste this weird hexadecimal string in over here and then hope that you do it right. And you hope that something weird doesn't happen in the middle. And so then you get the ETH from your Coinbase to your Meta. So you get there. And you're just trying to buy your first NFT. It's over on Polygon. Also, if you've made it this far and nothing wrong has happened, like you're doing so great already. You're doing so great. Even though For you've sure. done nothing. <laughs> yep, 100%. And so the next step, you're like, okay, 
my NFT is over here. Somehow you figure out that it's like on this thing called Polygon. You're like, I don't know what Polygon means. And then you like, we're going straight to L2, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're going. And it's like, all right, now you have to add the Polygon RPC endpoint to me. You're like, what? What is, I don't know what any of this thing, this means. So you somehow figure out how to add the Polygon RPC endpoint. And then you're like, okay, I got to bridge the ETH from the ETH to the pot. And you're like, what is a bridge? I don't know what this is. So you Google bridge and you probably get scammed in the process doing that. Cause like, I don't even know what bridge to use to bridge from one thing to another. So then you somehow find a trustworthy bridge to bridge from Ethereum mainnet to Polygon. And then you have to find the platform by the NFT on, you probably get scammed in the process. So anyway, moral of the story is the Web3 experience is entirely broken. And if we can just introduce identity and reputation along the way to give people a little bit more context when they're interacting with things or trying to discover things in the first place or give them some level of certainty that what they're interacting with is something reputable or trustworthy, like that, it's a big piece of the puzzle and we have to solve it before a bunch of people pour in. So that's what I'm most excited to see. And so hopefully people build a lot of that stuff on top and we'll probably do some ourselves too, because it's important. When do you foresee that being a reality? Because I mean, like, first things first, with MetaMask right now, when you go to sign a transaction, it's not even in English. Even if you know what you're doing, it's a bunch of gibberish. So how am I to know if I'm buying a real Azuki NFT or a scam one? That's the low-hanging fruit that I we want to solve with intuition. Thankfully, MetaMask has MetaMask snaps and they're pretty dope. And so you don't have to get MetaMask buy-in to build cool arbitrary functionality on top of MetaMask. So we'll have the intuition step and we'll just show you what people are saying about the thing you're interacting with. And so ideal user experience, instead of just seeing a bunch of gibberish, you see what your intuition is saying about the thing you're interacting with. And it's like, oh, my intuition is saying that these people that I trust have interacted with this thing before, maybe they've made a claim about it and are saying that it's secure or trustworthy or the officially verified contract that you're supposed to be. They can say whatever they want, but you just see what's going on and you're like, okay, this looks like the right thing. You can take it a step further and this goes into the curation conversation. There will probably be people who build stuff on top who say, okay, based on the data, let's give it a little blue check mark, but let's make it verified. But like getting opinionated about stuff is like, you enter kind of murky censorship waters. And so we're just trying to create the data and let people build that stuff on top. But basically when you're interacting with something, you will be able to see what people are saying about the thing, which is probably relatively helpful or better than what we've got now. Yeah. Also going back, you said that the super cool app that you can think of you guys are building. Can you say what that is? You thought you could just skim past that, didn't you? I can, I'll like allude to what it okay. is. I don't want to give I'll away all the secret sauce. Sure. But going back to this problem of being able to discover things, we just need to be able to search for things and find them. And so sometimes I'm like, what are all the current Ethereum layer two ZK rollups? And you Google it and you get a bunch of blog posts from a bunch of people. And you're like, I don't know who any of these people are. I don't know which one of these blog posts to trust. Is this holistic? I don't know. And then you got like curation platforms like L2B and maybe you go there to like figure it out. But like, it's really hard to discover stuff in Web3. And so I think our killer app is generally in the vein of helping people discover the things that they're looking for in Web3, if that makes sense. Okay. 
I like that little teaser. <laughs> I hope it's people important. speculate yeah. as to what this is. I hope listeners speculate and come tell us on Twitter or Discord or whatever <laughs> what you think the app is that they're building. Please also, wrong ideas only. Like, I yeah. want to hear the craziest thoughts. <laughs> For sure. Okay, cool. I know we're way past time, but we still have some questions from Twitter, and I'm going to at least try to hit a couple of these. So let's see. We'll throw... Floppy Abe won first since he nominated you and got you on the podcast. He said, what Magic the Gathering color or color combo do you have the strongest affinity for? That's a good question, Floppy. thought you were going to like toss me a softball, bro. Probably like green-white. I feel like I have a strong affinity for nature and good. And also, I don't know if we're talking about the mechanics of how each of those types of decks play, but green is kind of building this system that grows over time and then you, it's a more macro game i feel like and i like playing the macro game and like building the system i'll go with i'll go with green white that's what color your walls are like that shade of green is it green sorry i'm kind of colorblind so maybe it's not green it's like mud it's like mud black brown <laughs> i would for real would be really good yeah i it guess totally it, it looks green to me green. like how green oh my god like kind it of looks green, like fo- it looks like forest green like a Ooh. yeah, like a I could see kind that. of muted forest green. It's not, but it probably should be. That would be way better than what it is right now. It looks great to me on the screen. Thanks. For, okay, next question. <laughs> Markler wants to know what keeps Billy up at night. Oh man, oh, kind of, probably like AI and oh. superconductors. <laughs> like I don't want superconductors equal supercomputer equal maybe they break our cri- cryptography and people are able to steal all my ETH. So that's one scary thing. And then AI is just things are moving so fast, and I don't think we can comprehend how exponential these curves are going to get because you just have like, all of these overlapping exponential curves of technology, which are increasing the pace of advancement so fast. And so I just think it's like a singularity in the sense that we're not able to comprehend what the world's going to really look like in five years or 10 years. And so it keeps me up at night in both a good and bad way, because the unknown is super cool. And there'll probably be a lot of good that comes of it. And I think maybe we enter this golden era enabled by AI that like lasts for a while. And then maybe some crazy stuff happens after that. But yeah, AI and superconductors, I guess. (laughs) You know that meme with the couple in bed? And the girl's like, he's probably thinking of other girls or whatever. <laughs> You're just thinking of superconductors. <laughs> that's what I just pictured in my head. Yeah, that's that very accurate. Okay, Zero X Pickleback wants to know, what is he wearing? I don't know if this is creepy or if there's context behind this. Are you like a fashionista that people always want to know what you're wearing? or? No, I'm wearing a black button-down shirt that is probably a little bit too formal for puerto rico but yeah and some brown shorts <laughs> okay okay thank you pickleback for that question thanks pickle okay last question this is gonna be a good one this is from kames garrity kames says ask him about that one time where he wrote a grand vision for identity from a hospital bed after having a very serious motorcycle accident and how that shapes his focus today oh man story time so yeah basically I broke all my limbs at the same time in a motorcycle crash. I was just like a potato because I didn't have like arms or legs. And so it was hard to do anything, but I could do speech to text. And so I wrote this white paper for this thing called rapid from bed from speech to text mostly. And at some point I got ability to type a little bit. So it transitioned over to being able to type, but that is how the birth of that thing formed. But basically the whole idea 
behind this thing called Rapid. It was when I was still at Consensus, and it was when Consensus had grown pretty large, pretty fast. And so there was at times more people than work to do, especially within the consulting practice when people were waiting for enterprise projects to land. And these people wanted to build, they wanted to do cool stuff, but they weren't being fed cool stuff to do. And so my whole thought was, let's grab all of these people, let's get them building cool stuff, and then let's have that cool stuff be stuff that consensus can use or leverage internally to improve its own business operations. Because we're out there preaching the gospel to every other enterprise about how Ethereum could revamp their processes. And then we have zero things that were Ethereum enabled internally. And it just felt a little bit disingenuous. So it's like, let's actually use Ethereum ourselves as a business to make our business better. And let's use these people to build those tools. And then we can eventually make those tools external and have other people leverage them. And so I wrote this whole system about how we would do that. And as with anything, there's an identity component because every system you build, every application you build, you have to think about identity pretty significantly. And so definitely identity components in there. But that is the manifesto that I wrote from hospital bed. How long were you in the hospital for? I wasn't in the hospital super long. It's probably like, I'm going to get this wrong. It's so hazy because it was a rough time, but maybe a week. But then I was bedridden for many months after that. So misnomer, I was writing it from a bed. That was not a hospital bed, but yeah. So it took months for you to regain movement with your limbs. Yeah. And I had something called a terrible triad. So like the bone shot through my elbow and destroyed it. And for a while they tried to put it back together and they're like, you have to move it all the time. And so I was just always trying to move it, trying to get it because it was stuck like this. My arm was just stuck like this for months. And I was like, guys, I'm not making any progress here. It really hurts. And then I went to a different doctor and they're like, you can't actually move it. The bones are just misaligned. And so every time you've been trying to move it, you've just been destroying your cartilage and we have to actually remove that bone and give you a fake one. And so they had to replace my radial head is what it's called. And so how did you get in your motorcycle accident? Oh, I was just, it's totally like my fault. I was riding kind of like a more street motorcycle on this dirt trail and went a little bit too fast around a turn and it slid out. And then I, I don't know how it was so bad, but I guess I'd hit a bunch of rocks and bounced on some stuff and motorcycle landed on me a little bit. So yeah, the, the result of that was probably like the worst. It, I guess it can always be worse, but that's pretty I know bad. what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Do you still ride a motorcycle? No. <laughs> Have you since that? I tried a couple of times and I was so scared and so hesitant. Like every turn, I'm like, oh my God, it was so scary that I just had to give it up. It wasn't even fun anymore. <laughs> That's fair. I, I think most people would be the same way, probably. So the last part of Kames' question, how does that shape your focus today? Has that changed your outlook on life? It has. And things fade so fast. You know, it's so hard. You, you have these huge life-changing things and you're just like, wow, I have to savor my health so much. I have to live life to the fullest every single day. And you have that for a while. And I think depending on the severity of the thing, you have it for an increasing amount of time. But over time, it just kind of fades. And, and I think you have to intentionally give it energy and intentionally remember it and, and have gratitude or else it just kind of fades. And maybe this is oversharing or TMI, but it's just like it fades after a while. It hasn't been that long. It's been maybe four years or so, but I feel like it's faded and I need to give it more attention and intentionality just to the fact that it's so nice to be able to walk and do the things that you want to do and type on my computer, even that you take for granted every day. And so, man, it, it definitely shaped me. The way that it shaped me, 
I think is incomprehensible. The way that it actively shapes me every day, I think has lost its luster and I need to remember and I need to have that gratitude more often intentionally. I mean, I think you're doing great, whatever way you're internalizing or externalizing all of that. But I think it's great that you've made it a worthwhile, like, I want to call it a worthwhile experience. But you know what I mean? Like, if it was going to happen, like you've taken something from it. And I think that any situation you're in or anything that happens to you, you kind of have a choice. And you can live your life as if everything has a meaning or a reason behind it. Or you can just be like, ah, why did this happen to me? I'm so angry. And so I think everything has a reason if you choose for it to have a reason because you make the reason. So yeah, I don't know. I feel like I just try to approach life that way. There's so many bad things that happen all the time. It's just like, oh, well, I'm going to make a reason for that. Maybe there isn't a reason, but as long as I believe there is and I turn this into something positive, then yeah, that's all you can do. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So this tweet that I found is from October 8th, 2020. And it's actually a quote tweet of the original tweet is no longer available. So it must have been pretty bad. And I'm wondering if you still remember what the original tweet said. So this is your quote says, do we have a term slash phrase yet for people who got lucky and got into Bitcoin early, thus making them a few dollars and consequently making them believe they're geniuses, but who are in actuality clueless idiots? Taking suggestions below. Oh, man. What's this guy's name? I'm going to say Jimmy Song. It was probably in reference to something that I don't know. I, when I think of someone that fits that persona, I just think of him. But yeah, I honestly don't remember what that was in reference to. But I, I feel like that persona is very much real. And man, all credit due for being early. And nothing against anyone who doesn't like live. You can live life whatever way you want. But the way that I choose to live life is just continuously learning. And it just feels like in Bitcoin land, there's not too much going on. There's Lightning Network. And it's probably pretty nice because you just don't have to learn anything new. Like every day you wake up, you're like, oh, orange coin, good. Is the number up? Number up, good. (laughs) Number down, bad. Like you just hold the Bitcoin, you hang out and you cook steaks and drink beers. And that's kind of sounds nice, honestly. But yeah, fun activity. If anybody is really bored, go to Billy's Twitter account, 0xBilly and just search Bitcoin. (laughs) Don't do that. I'm trying to like unite the tribes. There's too much tribalism now. Like for a while, I was trying to get the Bitcoiners to be like, hey, look at all the cool stuff happening in Ethereum land. You should totally check it out. But now it's just, I don't think there's any saving it. I think we just have to give up. And then we just have to unite the tribes. And it's like, here's crypto. And it's us versus centralized systems or subjective trust systems, or I don't know, there needs to be like less tribalism because we're going up against the regulators and the US government. And we can't have a disjointed front, we need to be united. So I apologize, everyone. Like, yes, you should totally look at what's going on in Ethereum if you haven't yet. But if you refuse to, that's fine. Or if you just can't understand, that's fine too. Like, it's okay. Let's just fight this battle together. We're all on the same side. Don't worry. I can guarantee you there are zero Bitcoiners listening to my podcast. Okay. Guaranteed. So (laughs) maybe one day, though, this is for like probably forever. (laughs) Like, this is recorded. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, it's going to be on chain. So it will be forever. Oh, no. (laughs) Because we made each episode as a podcast NFT. All right. Awesome. Well, Billy, thank you so much for all your time today. Sorry we ran over so much, but I really enjoyed this conversation. Tell people where they can find you, Twitter or anywhere else. And then how can people check out Intuition? Or do you have any alpha to leak about when you guys are planning on launching? Or what can people do to stay up to date? Can they give you their email address or do something else to learn more? 
Yeah, on Twitter, I'm 0xBilly. Feel free to DM me anytime. Feel free to email me anytime. My email is billy at intuition.systems. You can find intuition at intuition.systems and all of our media links are included there. In terms of alpha with respect to intuition, we've got a developer alpha going on right now. If you want to test out some of our stuff, reach out to me and we would love to have some people playing around with our SDK. And then... Yeah, just one one thing that I do want to point out, like we're I think we're going to try to create this intuition community. What we wanted to grow into is a place where people can discuss some of these more esoteric topics that we touched on today. So like the concepts of identity and reputation and trust graphs and knowledge graphs and social graphs, all of this stuff. There's I don't know if a singular forum where most of that activity is happening. And so we really want to create that forum because everyone has a different view of all of these concepts. I think some people have very compartmentalized views when they think of identity. And we just kind of want to expand people's thinking. We want to give people an outlet to share their experiences, share their thoughts, things like that. And so the intuition community, yeah, will be eventually probably centered around the tech that we're building. But in the meantime, I think we have the opportunity to create this space for people to hopefully talk about some of these topics if they're interested in them. So stay up to date, follow us on Twitter, look for announcements. We announce everything in Discord and pretty much on Twitter. So that'll be coming soon and would really appreciate if people just came and shared their thoughts, shared their opinions and just kind of riffed with us because that's what we need more of right now, I think. Yeah, more dialogue, more conversation, more nuanced takes. We'll link all of that in the show notes to make it easy for people to find. Thank you again so much, Billy. Thank you everybody for tuning in and we'll be back again next Thursday with another episode of Rehash. This is awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Rehash. Rehash is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Diana Chen, and sponsored by Lens, Livepeer, Quest, and Lore. Rehash is also supported by our community of NFT holders who curate our guest lineup each season. To get involved, head over to our website at rehashweb3.xyz and collect this episode as an NFT. Anyone who collects an episode becomes part of the Rehash community and will be able to nominate guests for future seasons. To learn more about how to become a guest on the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash podcast. And to learn more about sponsoring the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash sponsor. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at RehashWeb3 or on Lens at rehash.lens. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.